We're looking at that passage from Mark chapter 4 this evening for this baptism and confirmation. I'll be looking after the confirmation. It's a great privilege to be with you and share in this public occasion. As Stephen has already indicated and the girls have already said, uh, this is one of those rare rest of life moments public occasion. I could have done a confirmation quietly in the room over there and just confirmed them, but as it has been explained, it's meant to actually strengthen their own faith. They can look back at this occasion and say, I made a confession of faith in Jesus. And as they've confessed, and they will do it in promises in a little while, but you'll hear as they reply, and the promise of desire to follow Jesus the rest of their days that God will give them, I pray that you'll also be challenged to think about where you stand in relationship to Jesus. The question really behind that is, and it's an obvious one, and it might seem it's a self-evident answer, but we'll pose it. What is it about Jesus, more than anyone else, that says, I'm all in following him, all I have, for all my days, and he is the one? So what is it about Jesus? And we're going to be looking at that passage from Mark 4 to think through that. How about I pray and we'll look at this together. Father, we thank you of this time. Thank you of the reminder that you work in the world and you call people to know and serve the Lord Jesus. And we pray as we have this baptism and confirmation, be encouraged by what we've heard and what has been said, but also to reflect once again, whoever we are and wherever we come from, about our own understanding of Jesus as the one who's come in the world to be Saviour and Lord, and what is about him that we should follow. Help us, we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. I want you to imagine, and this would have been for many of you a memory from earlier this year, that most of you are from Helensburg, from those watching from overseas, imagine this scenario. One of those huge storms roll in. You know, those massive storms come in, and at the height of the storm, when everything's been unleashed, you've got the fury of the wind and the lightning and the thunder. And I want you to imagine going to the back of your house that you might have. Please make sure, if you do this, that no one else is around. At the very height of that moment, in the loudest voice you can muster, tell that storm to be quiet and stop. Okay? Now, what do you expect will happen when you do that? And the answer is nothing. Please, unless something has ever happened, you, nothing's going to happen, okay? It's extraordinary. You would even imagine that you would have the temerity to stand up and rebuke the wind and stop it that way. But of course, that's the point. Jesus does exactly that in this story. Uh, in verse 39, we read, get the right chapter, uh, uh, he got up, rebuked the wind and the waves, and said to the uh, wind, and said to the waves, "Quite be still." And the wind died down, and the, was completely calm. I want to say, if you want to look stupid, that was a moment he could look really ridiculous, standing up and making that claim. Uh, this is no ordinary storm. Lake Galilee, where they're crossing, is about two hundred meters below sea level, and it's still the case today because of the topography and geography. Winds can come out of nowhere and have complete calmness to a maelstrom in an instant. And when it comes across, the, the lake gully is whipped into fury. We have suddenly from calmness to three-metre waves. And, and it's very hard. And these are not just anybody on the boats. These are fishermen. 
who are used to being out there. And so they're sort of overwhelmed by this occasion. Yet, there is Jesus. He stands up and he doesn't even say this, God, please, at this moment, come and help us out. No, this is direct language, direct speaking to the wind and the waves, to the storm. Doesn't he, he just does it himself. And for the disciples who were there, it was overwhelming. We're told simply they were terrified in verse 41, if you've got it there in front of you. They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Who is this? Even the wind and waves obey him. And I understand why that would be the case. If you were there, it would have been absolutely terrifying and overwhelming. You would have said exactly the same thing. However, what is odd about this is that by now, the disciples had seen a fair bit about Jesus. And I would have thought, there's lots of other occasions they might have asked the exact same question. Who is this? Who is this? But now is the time. It's finally come. And when I say what they've seen before, there's quite a bit they have seen and heard already. In the first three chapters of Mark, just picking up the story, this is the sort of things that have occurred. He was uh, The first disciples were fishermen, as I said, and one day Jesus walked along the beach at Lake Galilee. He told them, come follow me. And we're told of the story, what did they do? Immediately dropped everything, left their family business. They were trained to be fishermen. Dad's superannuation scheme disappeared out in the horizon. And they just followed Jesus immediately, left everything behind. Now you think about, we take that for granted, what sort of person has a capacity with a word that would completely change everything, leave everything you rely upon and go? But that's what he did. His teaching very early on had an authority behind it that everyone said, this is extraordinary. They're used to people getting up and saying, don't disbelieve me, I'm saying the same thing Steve Carlyle says. And of course, the Steve Carlyle, I'm quite, you said, well, it must be true. Not with Jesus. He didn't indicate other people to bolster his case. He spoke from his heart in a way that people knew straight away, this is different. He had authority on the subject he spoke that was overwhelming and clear. Who is this, you might ask? The demonic world of that age was everywhere. It was troubling and concerning. No one knew what to do about it. But Jesus entered into, the, uh, into that moment and with words, with a simple word, he controls the demons and expels the demons from people's lives. But again, people had never heard or seen anything like it. No hocus pocus, no calling out, just simply with a command, the demon is gone. Who is this? He had the authority to heal. He healed the, the deaf, heard, the lame walked, the blind saw. All sorts of extraordinary miracles that no one had ever seen before. And again, it wasn't have to be anything more than simply he said the word. And it happened. And they were overwhelmed. People liked the idea of being healed, but at the same point, they're looking at, who is this who could do it this way? He had the authority to deal with social exclusion. Leprosy in that day was a terrible disease, not just because of the nature of what happened to the skin. You were excluded from society. 
You were taken to the margins. You're no longer part of the community. Not just that he dealt with leprosy, he brought them back so they belonged to the very community they were expelled from. He controlled social life and exclusion in a way that was never seen before. He had the authority to forgive sins. <coughs> Once a man was lowered down and he expected to be healed after being lowered into the house, and Jesus simply said, I forgive your sins. Well, that's pretty bizarre. When you offend someone, in, offend, the person's offended in sinning is God. What has it got to do with Jesus that he forgives the man he sins? But without even a question mark, he does that. And people say, who is this? He even forgives the sins of people this way. He had the authority over the highest religious part of their society, the Sabbath day. The Sabbath was a controlling religious weekly occurrence. And he came along and said, I'm the master and lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is determined not by others, but by me. As I stood up and said, look, I am here to tell you, I'm determining what Australia Day is all about. You say, who gives you the right to determine what Australia Day is about? But he could say, I have the capacity to speak of the most important religious festival in our lives. I can determine what it's about. Who is this? And lastly, he had the authority to redefine what family really was. So over all these things, these moments, again and again and again, accumulating, but now is the moment. After all they've seen, all they've heard, this moment where the storm was quelled, and they go, wow, who is this? Who is this? So what's going on? What is going on with this man, Jesus? He has this authority, extraordinary authority, has authority over everything, but why is it there? What is the nature of his authority and why does he have authority over nature? And what does it add to our understanding of who he is by having this authority over the very characteristics of our world? Well, it's two things. It's related to the kingdom he's establishing and to the nature of the conflict that's going to be entered into to establish the kingdom. So kingdom and conflict. First of all, kingdom. He's coming to the world as God's Messiah. He's coming to the world as God's promised king who is going to establish a perfect righteous kingdom for the world that will be eternal, never overturned, and he'll be establishing this kingdom by being king himself. He will inaugurate it by his coming and his death. He will consummate it, as we know, when he returns. But this kingdom is the central controlling feature of what he's doing. The conflict? Well, the kingdom is not just going to happen in a straightforward way. He's restoring a world that's broken and fallen apart. And he needs to demonstrate he's going to overturn and bring a world of righteousness and peace that will never be broken. And so to do this, he's going to actually overturn those things that rob us of all those righteousness and peace that we long for. And the nature of his authority shows what is the nature of the kingdom he's establishing. One of the extraordinary things about Jesus' life, I was during the recent elections, I was my office is down at Wollongong. One day I was walking down, and the next minute I see all these security people and all these media people. And straight away, you know, are politicians in town. 
Soon you know they arrive because they don't come by themselves, don't come unannounced, they've got all their people around them to support them. Here is a man who comes as the Messiah and King of the world, and there's nothing about his circumstances that, oh, he's somewhat important. No one picks that up anywhere. He just seems very ordinary. There's nothing about it. Now, there's many reasons for that. But part of it is his kingdom, most of all, is not political. If you were to survey the average Israelite of that day, if you said, well, who do you think, what's the biggest problem we're facing for ourselves? And most of them would say, well, we haven't got self-rule. Someone's controlling our lives. Sorry. Uh, the Romans are controlling our lives. But that's not what Jesus has come to deal with. He's not come to deal with political problems. He's actually come to deal with something more substantial. The problem he's come to deal with is Satan and the dominion of darkness by which he, over which he presides. Sin and evil controls the world. And the world and people in the world are held captive under the darkness of sin and Satan and death. And he's going to come and rescue people from that domain, that dominion, and bring them across from darkness to life, from unrighteousness to righteousness, from death to eternal life. So the fundamental problem the world was facing in that day and today still remains spiritual. It affects everything, everywhere. The world is not as it could be and will never make the world all that it could be. And so the authority that Jesus is exerting is to deal with and destroy the real enemy that's controlled the world. So to rescue people so they can belong to him and be secure in him and have life in him. By that I mean, I know what I'm about to say, I think we need to pray for our political life. Don't be end up being cynical about those who go to political life. If we end up being cynical, we'll have a problem worse than we've got now, right? So there are lots of problems about our political life, but don't become cynics. However, having said that, during election time, we don't go to sleep at night saying, oh, I could go to sleep if only the traffic in Sydney would improve. I don't go to sleep at night tossing to me. I can't sleep because the hospital system's not as good as it should be. What keeps you awake at night when you can't sleep? It's the conflicts in your life, the loss of relationships with family members. It's the health issues that feels like crushing you. It's the anxieties that come or accumulate. In other words, it's those personal spiritual things all around us that we know that we want dealt with. And Jesus' authority comes to deal with that disorder and darkness in the world. So his arrival is spectacularly good news spectacularly good news, absolutely wonderful. But as I said, his arrival precipitates the conflict. And so what we have in the opening chapters of Mark's Gospel up to Mark chapter 4 are the opening skirmishes in a conflict that keeps revolving and, and going on. And we see Jesus' authority. And so what we need to have in our mind, and by this point we're getting a clear picture, this Jesus the Messiah is the master of everything in the world. There's nothing he doesn't have control of. There's nothing he doesn't have mastery of. No circumstance, no person, no natural reality in the world 
that he doesn't have control of, yet we enter the point where his life is lost. His life is taken. And the question we have is that how is it possible the one who controlled even the wind and waves, who controlled people's lives, could control what happened in his death? And we'll come to that in a little while. But for now, I want to go back to the two questions posed by the disciples in relationship to this Jesus on this occasion while these boats were crossing Lake Galilee. The first question is verse 38, and it's the question, does Jesus care? Verse 38. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. Disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? So the first basic question is, does Jesus care? That's a still important question many of you have today. You're going to follow him. Does he care at all? But I'm going to deal with the second question first, which is, who is Jesus? We've already been talking about that. End of verse 41, they were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. So who is this? Well, he's the Messiah. We've established that. But what nature of Messiah is he? Now, the seas for the average Jew was a terrifying place. Jews were places of chaos and no one can control. In fact, in the Old Testament, there was only one person who had the capacity to control the wind and the waves of the sea. You know who it was? God. Reading Psalm 65. God our Saviour, the hope of the ends of the earth and of the farther seas, who formed the mountains by your power, having armed yourself with strength, who stilled the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves, and the turmoil of the nations. Who can control the wind and the waves? Well, God can. Same in Psalm 106, verse 9. About God, he rebuked the sea and dried it up. He led them through the depths as through a desert. God can control all these things that are beyond the capacity of anyone to deal with. And then we come to Jesus. What, by a man of interest, what did Jesus bring along for the boat ride across Lake Galilee? Did you notice what he brought? He brought a cushion. If anyone came to church tonight with a neck cushion, I'd say, I think you've come for a bit of a snooze. You're all awake? Please. Jesus bought a cushion. He was exhausted. That's why he'd had a long day. of. He's just tired. And they're used to seeing Jesus like that. He's been hungry, thirsty, tired. All the things that we normally associate with people. He needs his sleep. This is normal and expected. But what the disciples are glimpsing, and this goes back to the answer to the question, who is this man, was that he was also God. He was also God. As God, a miracle over nature is occurring. What Jesus did was something only God himself could do. What they saw was a tired man asleep. But who he really was, and they saw a glimpse for the first time that was overwhelming, that he's not just the Messiah, he's the Messiah who's also the God-man. That's who it is. But then we come to the second question. Well... That's all well and good, but does he care? And that's one of the really fundamental questions we all will have at different stages. If you're not asking that question tonight, 
some of you probably are, you'll ask at a different stage, does he care? Fairly basic question. I've thrown my lot in with him, does he even care about what happens to me? From the disciples' point of view, they're about to drown and he's just simply having a snooze. At this time of crisis, he's not even present, is he? Seemingly. Where have you been? I've been asleep. That's been no good to me at all. He's exhausted. However, because he's not just a man, but God, he's always attentive, always available, and always caring. Nothing can ever stop his caring. He can't be so tired and distracted that he sort of takes it eye of things and says, oh, this, well, that's a surprise. By the way, nothing ever can happen in your lives that God says, or he wakes up, you wake up one morning and say, well, I didn't expect that to happen. But for this moment in time, for the disciples, their fear triumphed over their faith. Their fear triumphed over their faith. There's nothing wrong with a cry to Jesus. Everyone should cry out to Jesus if they're confused or uncertain. But what had happened to them is their fear had got the better of them. It's not the mere quantity of faith, but the quality of their faith that's in question when he says, you have no faith. In verse 40, he said, disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Either faith chases out fear or fear chases out faith. The right fear to have is that, who is this? This is Jesus who's God. Always available, always there. I cannot just treat this person with a casual disregard. This is not someone just to sort of look at occasion. This is someone to honour with all that you have. He'll never rebuke anyone for calling out to him. God is faithful in all areas of life. And what the disciples hadn't quite learnt, even when he was asleep, he was caring for them. Get that? Even when he was asleep, he was caring for them. When he woke up and rebuked the wind and waves, it became clear he was caring for them, but there was the same all the way through. He does care for us, and he has the capacity to care for us, and he cared for the disciples on this occasion. But I'll finish by looking at the question that he posed to them, which I think, if I was there, I would have said, this is really unfair. His question was in verse 40, do you still have no faith? I want to say I'm offended on behalf of the disciples. You know why? If I said, well, hang on a minute. I have dropped everything for you. I've been with you for all this time. I haven't given up on you. And I've done all this with you the whole way through. And now at this moment, you're saying I've got no faith. The doctor's saying, oh, you've just felt a little bit. No faith. No faith at all. So what is at play here? Well, the question is, they haven't grasped really who Jesus was. The disciples had failed to realise that the Messiah could not possibly die at this moment. What's the very nature of the Messiah who comes? He rules. He's victorious. He's not going to 
bubble away to the bottom of the Lake Galilee, quietly disappearing from the world. He hasn't established any kingdom. There's no way now he's just going to die in an accident on a boat. That's not what he's come to do. And indeed, you get an insight into this later on in Mark chapter 8, where Peter, I'm speaking on behalf of the disciples, finally gets the insight to the nature of Jesus. Who, who are you? You're the Christ, the Messiah. And Jesus straight away said, yes, true. And as a Messiah, I will lay down my life and die on a cross and three days later on. And if you're familiar with the story of Mark chapter 8, Jesus, Peter draws Jesus aside and said, look, you've blown it there big time. You're not going to, you've just said the wrong thing because Messiahs do not die. Messiahs don't, they conquer. They're victorious. So who they have faith in is this Jesus as the Messiah who rules and that a kingdom he's establishing hasn't been established fully at this point. So they haven't quite grasped the faith they should have in Jesus. Jesus was asleep and exhausted, but in language of John's gospel, his hour had not yet come. Exhausted as he was, he displays the authority of God over all the world. Asleep, he looks so weak, so finite, so powerless. But what I saw was the power and the glory, the infinite, unquantifiable nature of God when he got up and rebuked the wind and waves. And both are always there. Both are always there. The disciples lacked the ability to see the situation of what it was. That Jesus had come to establish this kingdom, and until the kingdom was established, his work is not finished. And so eventually he will buy his death, and when it occurs, it will be voluntarily entered into is the moment he will establish this kingdom with finality and completeness. And the spiritual forces that rule the world will be finally defeated. And the faith of the disciples were able to express in a very weak way, be fully realised when they see the nature of his death, his rising from the death, and calling people to enter into the kingdom of eternal promise of righteousness and hope. So let's return finally to the boat. The night where it's been tossed around by a violent storm where hardened fishermen fear for their lives. They're just starting to grasp the nature of this Jesus they're following. They thought they had really understood him, but they hadn't. In a short little while, six of the ladies, are coming, women are going to come forward, young women, and they're going to confess their faith in Jesus because they've seen the outcome of all his life and all that he has done, the nature of the Messiah who is God and man, who gave up his life so that his kingdom be established, Satan is dominion destroyed, and moving people from unrighteousness to righteousness, from death to life. And the key figure in that is Jesus himself. Why would you want to follow Jesus? There's no one else ever has ever come who has this greatness about him and established this kingdom that is eternal and always there. He responding to him is not one because of familiarity or sentimentality. He is the one who is transcendent and personal and powerful. And so with tenderness and care, he calls out, come to me, come to me and follow me. 
and a short little while as our six young women put their hands up to do that, I want to ask each of you, where are you in relationship to this same Jesus? If the greatness is here before our eyes, how do you respond to the same one who gave his life for each of us? I pray. Father, thank you for your word. God, and direct us. And we thank you for the way you worked in the lives of these young women. Thank you, Father, they've got clarity in who Jesus is and that he cares for them and they have expressed their faith in him. We pray also for ourselves that we'll be challenged to see where we are in that same walk and desire to follow him the same way. In Jesus' name, amen.